Okay, so we are going into Parshat Bo, which means come. Come to Pharaoh. And what we've done so far is there's been seven plagues with Paro and Egypt. And the Jews have been in 210 years of slavery. And finally, Hashem says, okay, we're going to do three more plagues. That's why Bo also is a gematria of three, Bet and Aleph, two. This is what the Balaturim, one of the commentaries says. Two less severe ones, and then one last one, which is going to be something which is mind-blowing, which is where uh, the firstborns are going to be striked, and then you will be freed. And Hashem says to Moshe, Bo el paro, come to Pharaoh. And that's kind of strange, because that's not how you talk. You'd normally say, go to someone. Don't say, come to someone, unless you're, maybe you have some broken English, and you are from another country, and you say, come, come. And then you go to the other side, and you say, come, 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 because you don't know how to say go. But if you know how to speak, you'd say, go to Pharaoh, not come to Pharaoh. So what does that mean? What's the message here of the words, bo el paro? And the answer that many have given is, who's speaking here? It's Hashem. And Hashem is everywhere. Mel'ah ha'aretz, his glory, fills the entire world. The light of Hashem is everywhere. So it doesn't need to say go. It says come. But also there's a very powerful message here, which a lot of the Mepharshim, the commentaries explain, which is, he was saying come to Paro because, look, Moshe could be easily giving up and say, listen, I went to him seven times and each time there was this plague and he keeps saying, no, what's the point of me going again? Come on, Hashem, you could do something. Just let them all go. Let, just let them all drop. What are you doing this for? So Hashem says, come to Paro. Come with me. Wherever you go, I'm going with you. That commandment that I'm telling you to do is not just that you're going. It's me coming with you. And that's a very powerful message. That the glory of Hashem fills the entire world. It's one of the questions that many have is when I think of prayer. Many ask this question. When I'm trying to pray, how do I picture something that doesn't, it's not in front of me? It's not like I'm talking to another friend. How does prayer work in a way where I open a siddur, a prayer book, and I start saying the words, but I can't really picture someone in front of me. What am I going to do? It's hard. Many Mekubalim, Kabbalistic teachers, mention this. Mainly the Ramcha, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, who lived about 300 years ago, talks extensively about this idea. How can I picture something which is in front? How do I make it real? Like, Mamchushi, feel that my prayer is like going somewhere. Because we all have an inner in, you know, need to speak out our needs without people, just with Hashem alone. But at the end of the day, I don't have someone in front of me. So how do I, am I able to express that prayer in a way that is effective? And one of the things that we do is we think of the words, This is actually a statement in, um, in Tehillim. Hashem fills the entire universe. So you think of this idea that Hashem is completely is everywhere. It's not just in another place or far away. It's right in me. It's everywhere. It's something which is It's like, obviously it's not the exact comparison, but it's like almost like you have a sponge in the ocean. You throw the sponge in the ocean and the, the sponge absorbs all the water. And in the ocean, all you have is water. So this world, if you want to try and picture the idea of this, this world is like the sponge where it's filled with the water, but the water already is in everywhere. And that's Hashem. Obviously, it's not a true comparison because Hashem is beyond that. But the idea of an infinite being connecting to an infinite being and him being within us, that's something that we can actually kind of relate to. 
He fills the entire world. And it's a mistake to think that, oh, if I can't see it, then it doesn't exist. There's many things that we can't see. Do you know what we can't see? We can't see many radio waves. There's gravity. There's x-ray. When we take x-ray images, when I go to the dentist, he runs away, presses the button with the door closed because he doesn't want to get any radio waves on himself. The dentist is constantly uh, taking uh, pictures and images, x-ray images uh, of us, and he doesn't want to always be exposed to the radio waves. He runs into another room. And why is he doing that? Can, he can't see the x-ray. He can't see the waves, the radio waves. So why is he bothered by it? Because it exists, even though we don't know. There's so much that we know exists, but we just don't see. When I turn on the radio, there's audio coming out of the radio because radio waves are a certain wave that we can't see. It's not in our vision, but that wave exists. The, the amount, the spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum that we have and what we can actually see is a tiny fraction of what's really visible in the world. Tiny fraction. What's truly visible is beyond us. So electromagnetic spectrum, we, we only see a small bit, but you know, radio waves, turn on the radio, but somehow there's sound coming out, AM and FM. That's real waves that are coming and it's being translated by the machine and brought out into audio that we can actually hear. But these are real waves that exist. We just don't see them. We could see waves that are a bit stronger than that, but that was that's too weak for us to actually visualize. There's so much when somebody can't see. He can't see well, and he goes to get an eye test. There's letters on the wall. You can't see all the letters. Do they exist? Yes. Can I see them? No. I know they exist, but I can't see them. When a doctor uh, does some kind of surgery, I know that he's doing surgery in parts of my body that I can't see, but I know they exist because I've understood that those things are there, even though I can't see them. So in the physical world, there is so much that we can't see. Think about colors. There are colors that, what what is a color anyway? What's a vision anyway, right? It's light rays that are reflecting uh, into me. And because of those light rays, some some things absorb all colors. And that's why you get black. White is when you reflect all colors. And that's why you see white. And there's, there's some things that don't reflect all colors. They take in different rays of light, and therefore you get different colors. And the eye is able to see millions, millions, 10 million colors in, in the eye. So our vision is able to see so much color. Do you know how many pixels? And right, a normal camera today is 30 megapixels, a good camera, right? A, a phone camera is 24, maybe. I don't know what a good phone camera, how many megapixels it has. But the eye sees over 530 megapixels every second. Can you imagine? We don't don't even understand what that means because it's so much vision. When we see a really good camera taking a really nice picture, we're we're like, wow. Do you know why? Because it feels so real. It feels almost like I'm there. Because... My vision is so much greater than the vision of a picture that is taken. My vision is far greater. I can see if you cover one eye, you can only see less than half of your real vision. With two eyes, the vision that you have is so wide. It's, it's able to see right in such a good surrounding. It's, it's phenomenal. And the, the amount of pixels and depth of our vision is beyond us. There's no camera that can copy our eye, it's slowly getting there, but it's not near yet. And it doesn't give us the full, that's why when we see a really good image on a camera, we're like, wow, that feels so real. So there's so much that we can't see. So much that we can't see, even within our vision ourselves. And when we think about vision itself, what is it? What, what is vision? It's really just light rays um, being reflected on my body is actually translating that into an image that it sees. So in the world that we live in today, it's like, it's like in Hebrew what they call the batyana. There's a, 
I think it's the ostrich. I think Abatiana is an ostrich. I don't know if there's any Israeli speakers here. But Abatiana is an animal that when it's chased and it's, it's about to be killed, what it does in its last moments when it sees it can't defend itself any longer, it puts its head in the ground. And in fact, it thinks that at least if I don't see my predator, if I don't see, then at least I'm going to be safe. I'll be under the ground. If I don't see, I'll be fine. And that's obviously the wrong way of working, right? A batyana is not the right way of working. Meaning the message is that even if, if I can't see something, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, right? That's what the batyana thinks is the ostrich has this thought that if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. We can see in today's world so much more than we, we know that in this world exists so much more than what we really see. And because of that, science has developed into the way it has. Because of the idea that there's so much more to what the eye can see, we've put and invested all our resources in the past hundreds of years to be able to get to the point that we are today. It says in Tehillim, sorry, in Eov, in Job, from my flesh, I can see Hashem. One of the things that I love is Judaism, of course. But after that, it's science. And I used to love a lot more. I don't have time for it. But I used to love sports too. But science is a real way for me to appreciate the world that I'm in and see the glory of it. Right? Just how the body works, how the eye works, the vision of the eye. How the cells work. Let's think a bit for, for a second about the immune system. Right? The immune system. In, what is the immune system? We just say it. You know, it strengthen the immune system. Strengthen the, we just say these words, but do we really think about what it is? So, you know, there's the cells in our body and there's the white blood cells, which only actually make about 1% of the blood cells that we have. And there's multiple types of white blood cells that we have in our body. And these white blood cells fight our infections and bacterias. And it's, we, we say the immune system and boost it, but do we really think about what's going on in our body? These cells are like living beings. They understand and they can manipulate and they work together as a team. Let's think about that for a second. If, if there's a bacteria at my foot, immediately, faster than we can imagine, there's, there's different types of white blood cells, but the first type of white blood cell, are there to take sensors and kind of understand what kind of bacteria it is. And then it shoots off a certain chemical back to the body, all in milliseconds. Back to the body, to the brain, which now creates a different type of blood cells, which travel against the blood flow. White blood cells do not travel with the flow of your blood. It goes against the blood flow if it needs to get there quicker. So, there are certain types of uh, blood cells that are able, it's like an ambulance. We have rules of the road. But when you need an ambulance and someone needs to be saved, the ambulance is going to go against the direction of the rules of the road. It goes on the other side. It goes right against the red light. Boom, straight through because it needs to save someone. That's exactly how the white cells work. It goes against the flow. This is inconceivable. Till today, they don't understand how that works. It travels against the flow of your blood. So you know, if your blood's traveling this way, it can go against it upstream. It could go anywhere. In order to get to its destination, the white blood cells take only 1% of your blood, of your blood um, but it does wonders to keep you alive. So, from my flesh, I can see Hashem. Just by looking at my body, these are right as soon as there is a bacteria and it sends that message, new types of white cells uh, come and they are they go in groups, they're like tanks, and they go together, they start spreading arms and they commit suicide basically against the bacteria. They start spreading out their arms so it doesn't continue to spread. It's it's inconceivable. I mean, just spend some time learning about the white blood cells, and that's it. You're done. That's it. You can't you can't deny that these things are just not are mindless beings. It's, it, it's mad. We, we see a scar in our body. Somebody cuts their body. We don't realize that there was literally a, bod, a, a battle in your body to stop the blood 
from coming out. You know, when you have a barrel of wine and you have a hole in the barrel of wine, the wine's going to come out unless you stop it. The wine's going to come out. And you can't. If, imagine having a clothing which tears and automatically, as soon as it starts getting dirty or it tears, the clothing starts healing itself. Can you imagine how much money you'd make if you'd make such a clothing? A pair of jeans which tears as soon as it tears, boom. Okay, jeans are different. For some reason, it's fashionable to have torn jeans. But let's say some other clothing. The minute it tears, boom. The clothing itself automatically sends a whole army to close it and to relive it and make it fresh and new. Our body is constantly refreshed. You know, a dead body stink. It goes really bad after a very short... Our body cleans itself even though we have to wash it. But our body is constantly cleaning and reliving itself and looking after itself. It's mind-blowing what the white cells are doing to our body all the time. So you see a scar on your, on your hand or your arm and you think, okay, it's a scar. You see, I have one here, I have one here. You think, okay, it's a scar. You don't understand that there was a battle. There was literally a war going on right here. You cut yourself, there's a, otherwise you would have, all the blood would have come out. And what happens is these white blood cells go. Blood is something which congeals as soon as it's exposed to air. And the, in order to save it, the white blood cells start going towards the cut. And that's why you see all of those worn out skin around the cut. Because what happened was it's dead cells. There was literally a battle of bacteria versus your own cells fighting and killing and killing itself leaving itself, causing itself to be exposed to real bacteria in the air so that those cells will eventually be killed. They kill themselves for you. And this is happening all the time to our bodies. The, the white blood cells that go against the flow of your blood are called neutrophils. You can do research. They're called neutrophils. N-E-U-T-R-O-P-H-I-L-S. Till today, they're still, still trying to understand how neutrophils goes against the flow, that would be able to change a lot of our advancement in terms of technology and everything. We learn from the body crazy things. From my flesh, I can see Hashem. That's what it means, by the way, in Tehillim, we say, God does wonders by himself. And many asked, what does it mean God does wonders by himself? Are you trying to say there's more than one God? Of course, he does wonders by himself. What does it mean he does wonders by himself? Of course, there's no one else, right? Judaism believes there's God is an infinite being. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a figure of a body. So what does it mean when it says that God does wonders himself? I'll tell you what it means. He does wonders that we don't even know about. Today, with science, okay, we've come to learn a lot of the wonders that happens in the world, and it's fascinating. But there's wonders going on in my body that I don't even know about. That's what it means by himself. God kind of works on his own. Miracles are happening to my body. If I would calculate all the times I've had scars and my body has healed itself, I'll be blown away. Blown away with gratitude. But we just ignore it. We think, okay, you know, I had a cut, and there's another cut here, and here's a scar. Each scar should be a reminder of your love, right? When you see a scar on your arm, you're meant to say, ah, Baruch Hashem, right? Because what it's meant to remind you is, look how much love you've had. Your body got cured automatically by itself. Tell me one clothing that will be able to clean, to heal itself if it gets cut. But your body does that. Thousands of scars that we get over the years. Forget about in the time of birth and uh, and at the time when we are very fragile, very young age, it's, it's miraculous that we're here. And here we are. But we just kind of take it for granted because that's how it's meant to be. But these are all miracles and we're meant to be filled with joy when we think about all the miracles that happens to us and gratitude when we think about those miracles that happen to us. So that's why Pharaoh, Hashem says to Paro, he says to him, uh, come. It says to Moshe, come, come to Paro. Come to Paro because I am everywhere. I'm in you. I'm everywhere. There's no such thing as go by Hashem. I'm with you, even if it doesn't make sense. When we bless on the water, when we say a bracha on the water, going to the point of prayer, 
when we make a bracha on water, so what do we say? Baruch atah, blessed are you, Hashem, Elokeinu menech haolam, the king of the universe, shakol niyabidvaro, everything came to be through your will and speech that created it. So, at first, I say atah, you, baruch atah, blessed are you, you are the source of blessing before, right? that's the first way I say it. And then at the end, I say bidvaro in his speech. I speak at God in third person. Uh, in his, like the, the, the kings, in his kings. Like, do you know when you speak to a king, you don't speak to him in first person, you speak to him in third person. Will his honor allow me to walk in? Right? So we say, Shakol bidvaro, not bidvarecha. Everything came to be in his speech, Hashem's speech. It's not your speech. How come we started off with the blessing saying, blessed are you, Ata, and we finish off in third person? Why do we start off in first person and finish off in third person? That's not the way it should be. It's not in tune. It should be either blessed is he or blessed are you. So one of the explanations given by the Nefesh Chaim, who's also a Kabbalistic teacher, Rabbi Chaim of Elajan, who lived in, previous, in our previous century, he says, uh, that the idea is because at first when you pray, you want to make it relatable. So you want to recognize that Hashem is everywhere. He's you. He's, he's, he's right here. So at least for me to understand that it's something which is right with me, I have to say the word Atta. Ideally, it wouldn't be the right way to say it. Ideally, it would, it would be that we should say Baruch Hu. Hashem Elokeinu. But in order for me to feel that it's relatable, that he's right here, I start off with Atta. And then I end off with Bidvaro because it's out of respect. He is the king at the end of the day, so I should also recognize that distance. And I also say the word Bidvaro in his speech. But the ultimate beginning, I need to feel that he's right here. He's everywhere. Same idea as Bo. This is what David Amelech says. He says, David Amelech. In his Tehilim, Mizmole David, he used to sing. Whilst he was suffering, he would sing. Zemer, Mizmor, comes from the heart. It's not just a song. Shir is a song. Zemer is something that you bring from your inner depth. Like you really feel it. So, David HaMelech said, Gam ki lo Even if I go in the valley of death, I'm not going to be afraid because you are with me. And he says, Hashem ro'i lo Hashem is my shepherd. And I'm not going to be missing anything. What's a shepherd? Not that I'm a sheep and I have a shepherd and it means nothing. The sheep always knows that the shepherd has been feeding him till now. And he's the one that is going to continue to feed him. He has a trust. If the shepherd's not fencing me and looking after me, I'm in danger. So, David Melech would compare Hashem to his shepherd. I trust him. He is my shepherd. I'm the sheep to him in terms of, I don't know everything, but at least I'm with him in comparison to Hashem. He is my shepherd. I'm the sheep. When I lie on the ground, on the, on the grass to drink, he'll, when he tells me to lie, right, to drink, I'll, I'll do that because I know that I can trust him. If there's a fox Telling the sheep to drink, he'll be afraid, right? Because he's not got a connection. But the shepherd, I know he's there for my benefit. He wants me to be successful and grow. So he continues and he says, That stick that you have, but also that mish'an is a stick that you lie on. There's two types of sticks. There's one stick that you guide people with, which are kind of like hitting and there's another stick which you use to support. That stick, which may seem as something which is a challenge for me, is a mish'an. It's really a support for me. It keeps me going. That's, that's how I look at it, says David Melech. That's what it means. That's how David, David the king, was the, was the legend 
of singing songs, even in the, the most difficult of times, in the most difficult of situations, he would see that Hashem is really with me at all moments. That's what he said. In, in my pain, in my, in, in my own body, I could see Hashem. And when a person does that, when the person brings that that idea that the whole world is all intertwined with this oneness, a person can be calm because a person can be more relaxed, can know that even though if it doesn't make sense to me right now, I can continue because I know that this will bring me the best later on in time. That's what it means, Bo. Bo, I don't understand. I've already gone there seven times. I need to go again? Hashem says, come. Come with me. By the way, this is also very powerful in terms of educating. A lot of times, if your child is not sure whether you should go or not go, lead them along the way. Say, come, come, come with me. For instance, you want your child to help clean up. So a lot of times, a parent can get late you know, not, not lazy or busy with other things and say, please go and do it. How much more powerful is it, is it to say to your child, come with me to do it? Because I'm doing it, now you join with me. Right? Come with me. I'm learning some Torah. Avram, come and learn with me, Aleph Bet. So much more powerful than, oh, let's learn Aleph Bet. Come on, bring me the book. When I'm already doing it, then my child wants to follow suit. He wants to go with me because I'm doing Aleph. He wants to do Aleph. When I do Bet, he wants to. That's the way of education. Come with me. Doesn't make sense, but I'll be your shepherd. Just follow along with me. So that's how it should be when in terms of us doing the right things in this world, and we know that this is something that should be done. I need to contemplate that this is, I'm not going to do it. I'm going with Hashem to do it. Right? When I do an act of chesed, I'm not going out of my way to do it. I'm walking with Hashem to do it. I'm walking with the creator of the entire universe. With that oneness, I'm following in that path to do it. It changes the whole dynamic. And that's the thought that we should have both in prayer and also in um, the actions that we do. So I want to carry on a little bit because... Um, it's important to continue the idea. By the way, so Hashem says, come to Paro. I'm doing this because I have hardened Paro's heart and the heart of his servants in order to show my wonders in him, in his midst. It's a very strange idea, this idea of Hashem hardening the heart of Pharaoh. So what does that really mean? I want to go into that for a few minutes. Because there's some really powerful messages that we can get from that too. Uh, as well as everything else we've said till now. What does it mean to harden the heart? How can it be that Hashem hardened his heart? If, he, if Hashem hardened his heart, where was Pharaoh's free will? It's the famous question that everybody asks. Right? We have the ability to choose over good or bad. Pharaoh was enslaving a people that did good to him, that started off doing good to him, and he enslaved them. So it was his choice to do that. And we as humans have a choice to do good or bad. Look, if I was pre-programmed, which is that seems what happened with Paro, Hashem hardened his heart, so he was pre-programmed, then it's no different than a robot. Listen, let me ask you. A robot serves you a drink of water. Should you say thank you to the robot? What do you think? Robot serves you a drink of water. You should? No? You can. It won't hurt. But you don't have to. Right. You can. It won't hurt. It definitely is not expected. It's not the same as somebody, a real human being, who comes out of his way and gives you, oh, that's so cool. You can write no like that. Right, who gives you a technology. Yee. Right? It's not like somebody, I'm talking to you, Joseph. It's not like somebody who comes to you with water and chooses to do it. It's a robot. I might thank the person that programmed the robot, but I won't thank the robot because he didn't choose to do it. 
if a robot does something, we don't have the obligation to say he's accountable or not accountable. It's the person that made the robot that might be accountable, but not the robot itself. When a, when a whale attacks, a shark attacks a human being in the ocean, do we get angry with the whale, say it deserves a death penalty? Let's find the whale and kill it. It killed a human being. Do we do that? No. Why? Because the whale was conditioned to do exactly what it does. It's to go in its ocean, and if it sees a bit of blood, uh, it gets attracted to it, or whatever it was, whatever reason the whale went and attacked that human being. It wasn't the whale's conscious decision. It was its intuition. It was programmed that way. So what does it mean that Hashem has hardened his heart? What does that really mean? So there's two different approaches to this question. One is Maimonides and then many other Mepharshim, many other uh, um, commentaries give a different approach. Maimonides' approach is that actually Pharaoh had free will until the fifth plague. The first five plagues, it doesn't say that I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Go to Pharaoh. I have hardened his heart and he will not let you guys go. Doesn't say that the first five. Only the last five did we see that Hashem hardens the heart of Pharaoh, makes him more stubborn to not let the Jewish people go. Only the last five. And Maimonides says from here we can learn that free will has its limit. It's true. You have free will to take heroin and drugs like heroin. But then you can put yourself in a situation where your free will will be narrowed and taken away from you. So that's exactly what happened to Pharaoh. It's true he had free will, but at a certain point, once you are stubborn to go in the wrong path with your free will, it's very, very almost impossible for you to get out of it. And actually Hashem helps you do more bad with your free will, meaning gives you no more option to do good. You have to continue to do bad because that's going to be your intuition. So after time number five, he was programmed to do bad. And from here we can learn that a person needs to be really cautious with the choices that he makes because at some point those cho choices will be almost impossible for you to leave them. For instance, as a younger person, a person can choose to be better. But if it's come habitual and you come old, and you're now 80, and you tell me, listen, I have no choice. There's no way that I can come better now. I'm 80 years old. At that point, it's true. It's very, very difficult for you to come out of it. And the reason is because it's now come part of your intuition. Because it's come your habit, it's come your intuition. It's almost like Hashem has now programmed you to continue being this way. There's definitely a choice at the end of the day for you to get out of it. But Hashem is the one that's going to harden your situation, make it even more difficult. A person who takes drugs to a point where they're absolutely addicted and it's dangerous for them to stop, you might say, okay, he's come to a point where he has to take it. It's not his fault. It's not his fault now. But originally, he had the choice. Okay, so that's Maimonides' approach. But the Sphono says, Maimonides always, uh, Sforno says, one of the commentaries says that Pharaoh always had free will, even when God hardens his heart. And actually, because he hardened his heart, that in itself was part of his free will. Meaning, Moses comes to Pharaoh and he says, let our people go. Otherwise, I'm going to give you the plague of water. Pharaoh says, no, 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 I will not let you go. So the plague comes and the water and it turns into blood. After seven days of seeing blood in the ocean, in, the, in your entire river, and everything's falling to pieces, will, will you have, ask everybody here, will you have a choice to be stubborn? You see, you see the damages. Clearly, Moses is saying, hey, look, if you keep going this way, look what's going to happen. And he comes again, he says, look, there's going to be another, there's going to be another plague frogs and the frogs are going to go everywhere 
And then Pharaoh said, for seven days, frogs in, in, in the ovens, in the bread, in the food, in his bed. They make noise. At the end of seven days, they couldn't hear. They, many of them went deaf. The noise, the sound of the frogs was so loud. Can you imagine thousands of thousands of thousands, millions of them making that sound everywhere you go in your food. And you, it went into their stomachs. It went everywhere. So after seven days of a plague of frogs, don't you think Pharaoh would learn his lesson? Look, if I told you, this is a very important message, lesson of free will. If I told you that every time you steal for the next year, or every time you give charity for the next year, you will get double the money. And if you steal, you'll lose double the money of what you steal. Every time you steal. If you're not honest with the money, and I don't mean stealing outright, you go to a store, you don't pay exactly, or you by mistake noticed in your bag that you had something that you didn't actually pay for, and you walk off with it, you will lose the value of that money immediately, and you'll see it immediately in your account. Will you have a choice to steal? Will there be free will to steal? The answer is no. If after you do something wrong, immediately you see the consequences of it, you're minimizing your choice to do that thing. I'll never do it. Look, as soon as I do it, look what happens to me. I'm never going to do this again. Every time I give charity, every time I do good, I see that my account doubles its money. Will I ever have a choice to not give charity? Of course, I'm going to just do good. So every time the plague came, in order for Pharaoh to remain in the realm of free will, he chose bad. In order for him to remain in the realm of free will, God had to harden his heart. I hope this makes sense to you all. Does this make sense? In order for him to remain in free will, Hashem had to make his heart, heart harden, make it more difficult for him. Because if he didn't, he would obviously he'd send the people out. There's no... He's not in the world of choice anymore. He's just a robot. So Hashem had to harden his heart, make him more stubborn so that he will continue having a free choice. This is a very important idea behind stubbornness. One of the reasons of our stubbornness is free will so that I will remain in the realm of free choice because if I see that something's wrong and I chose wrong and I see clearly the result of something wrong and I say, Look how obvious this, I was wrong. If I didn't have that stubbornness, then I, I would just say, okay, let's be good. Let's just be good, right? I'll never have that will to also choose to do bad. So Pharaoh had to have hardened his heart. Hashem had to harden Pharaoh's heart so he could still choose between good and bad. If he would get all these plagues and he would not have a hardened heart, not have stubbornness, he would just say, let the Jews go. So every time a person does something wrong, he feels connected to the wrong he does and therefore feels more stubborn to that path that he took. And that's called hardening your heart. So that's the second definition of uh, the commentaries. And this is a very important message also. This idea of... Um, Every time you do a choice, that choice now becomes part of your free will and, uh, and your heart is hardened, which is part of your free will, is a very powerful lesson as well. Why? Because a lot of times we say that, oh, what can I do? This is my situation. Right? We give in. We say, okay, this is my situation. I'm not good enough. I'm, I have no choice. I had no choice. I had to shout. I had to scream back because I had no choice. They were annoying me and I had to fight back and get aggressive. I had no choice. That's a language that we use a lot. And there are times when we may think we have no choice, but according to this opinion, the Sephora, even if we think there's no choice, there is a way out of that situation. We're still in the realm of free will even in a situation where we feel or think there's no choice. So for instance, um, a person's born up, brought up with very difficult parents. And he, ha he feels like he has no choice to deal with them. Even with the reality that you have no choice, 
because your parents are so difficult, you have choice. There is something that you could have done. No one says you have to hang out with them 24 hours a day. But the word I have no choice is, according to, especially according to this opinion, is anti-ethical to the, to the belief of Judaism. Because no matter what situation is, there is a choice. It might be very difficult, but there is a choice. Let's look at marriage. Okay, I'll give you another example. In marriage, there's two options. Either dealing with it. I mean, it's like that in everything. But in marriage, in a relationship, there's two options. Either, de- either dealing with it, learning to deal with it, or leaving it. Okay? So it, a lot of times we think that the best way out is divorce. You know, it doesn't go well. Let's get divorced. And by the way, according to Judaism, that is a way out. That's, that's a mitzvah. It's actually a mitzvah. People think that in Judaism, we're forced, at least the religious community, Orthodox Jews are forced to stay married. And that's why they don't get as high of a divorce rate. Because it's important for them to get married, stay married. Well, I've got news for you. It's a mitzvah to get divorced. In a time when divorce is necessary, according to Judaism, it's a commandment. I know somebody who made us a, 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 a real celebration to thank Hashem, a real Shabbat meal during the week to celebrate the fact that they got divorced because at least they didn't have to go through any more lawyers and difficulties. It went through smoothly. They finished with it and they were able to move on. I think that's a beautiful thing. Even in your difficult situation, to see the good. Yes, it's true that one of the ways of dealing with situations is, in a case where there's no other choice, divorce. But there's also dealing with it. And that's easier than we think. A person might say, but, you know, it's like Hashem hardened my heart. There's, it's just so difficult. It's, it's impossible. But it's, it's true it's impossible if you don't learn. There's ways. The Torah has specific ways to make marriage better. So, yes, without learning, then it may seem impossible. But if we're able to learn, that's the point. There. Even Fat Paro, no matter what difficult situation he was in, no matter how much hardened heart he had, he still had free will. And that's what, I'm, that's what the Sephorno says. No matter his situation, it may seem that he had to have, he still had an ability to choose one way or the other. So let me give you some examples, okay? In marriage, let's say, we, we know that A person must leave his parents and give more attention to his spouse. This is a commandment in the Torah. It's not good for man to be alone. Man, as in mankind. And they should eventually find the spouse. When you do find your spouse... A person must leave his father and his mother's home. What does that mean? Just leave their home? Obviously, are you going to stay with them in the same house? Stay in the same bedroom? Of course, you're going to leave your parents' home. What does that mean? It means give all your focus to your spouse. Till now, your home was where you came from, or your ultimate home is where your parents live. But at the point that you get married, who comes first? Your spouse or your parents? And the answer is your spouse. When somebody gets married, if your wife says go here and your parents say go there, you listen to your wife first before you listen to your uh, parents. It's a clear verse in the Torah. So what, what, what I'm saying is, the Torah has clear direction for us to know how to deal with and make a marriage work. A person can't just say, I have no choice. Yet, if in a situation where you don't learn, you have a choice to learn. That's also something. In order to make a relationship special. You don't just say thank you. There's ways that we know that work. You don't just say thank you. You say, you know, honey, until now, I thought my mom was a good cook, but this meal made me realize that you are the better cook. Oh my goodness, my mom could never cook like this, right? That's, that's part of the idea. You are better than all. 
also how the differences between male and female and the needs between the two are also clearly written in the Torah. It says, By the woman, it's a real desire for her to feel that connection and affection in the relationship, which is different to the man. By him, he also wants connection. It's true. But a man is definitely much more introverted. As long as you've got no complaints, uh, as long as everything's good, we're good. What's wrong? By her, it's not as long as it's good, we're good. It's not as long as your job's going well, we're good. I need to speak. I want to communicate. Right? That's So once we know the directions, the Torah tells me exactly how it works, then I can already work towards that path. That's what it means that a person can't say, I have no choice. You have no choice if you don't study, if you don't look for the right ways out. But just to say, I had no choice, I had no choice, is not an option. Sometimes, very rarely, it can be, and that's why divorce is a mitzvah. But before that decision is made, a person needs to see all the deep options within that relationship to see if it can really work. There's so much more to be said about this, but that's really the idea. We're, we're not meant in, in a relationship, we're not meant to fight. And we're not conditioned to fight. We're actually meant to get on, right? It's meant to be a place of harmony, shalom bayit, a place of home, of, of, of peace and tranquility. A relationship is made to be something which has harmony. And hopefully you will get that eventually in, in your lives too. And that's what it says. You know, a lot of times we think that my problems is because it was bad luck or Hashem, it's, Hashem put me in this situation and I had no choice. Hashem made me get here. Do you know what it says in Proverbs? Adam A foolish person will make mistakes in his life and then, ve'el Hashem yiz aflibo, and then to Hashem he'll get angry. He'll be angry with Hashem. He'll say, ah, look how bad this happened. Why did Hashem make this happen to me? But a lot of times, that problem that's happening to you has come by because of your own mistakes. A relationship, a relationship is the perfect example. The reason why I'm talking about this is because in so many ways, no one studies about it. We study about everything, but a relationship, no one really puts their energy in studying. And we just hope that it's going to work out. Dating. Do we really spend time studying about dating and making sure, really putting our focus into studying it? Yeah. If we do... We're part of this group. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. After our, But there's more to do. There's never an end. There's always ways to learn more and acquire more of a, a wisdom in terms of dealing with the situation as, as opposed to saying Hashem put me in this situation. Hashem made it so difficult for me today. Hashem made me so un un bad looking. Hashem put me in a place where it's impossible. Hashem hardened my heart. Hashem made me angry. Hashem made me not attractive. Hashem made me... right. That's kind of what we do a lot as opposed to taking charge and responsibility in our situation. And a, a foolish person will turn out, would, would change his ways and then make a mistake in his ways and then blame God on his mistakes. And sometimes, if you did everything you could, then you can blame God. But a lot of times, a lot of times, it's our responsibility much more than it is the blaming of Hashem. So that's what it means to have free will. Even if Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he could have, no matter what his situation was, he still had free will. He still could choose to do good. Pharaoh failed. He said, ah, my heart was hardened. I, I, I feel stubborn. But no matter in your situation, no matter how bad it is, there's always another possibility. It might be a very hard, difficult choice to make, but there's a better choice than a worse choice. There's always a world of free will, no matter what your situation is, even if you feel it's impossible. A person could be in prison, locked up. There's still free will there. This is mind-blowing. This is what we're saying. In the place where you feel like there's no choice. I was put here by God. I had no choice. My heart was hardened. or My world has been stopped. It doesn't matter. 
no matter your situation, there is a world of free will. And that's that opinion. And I think that opinion also has a very powerful ground to it. It's a very powerful idea. No matter what your situation, in that situation, there is a realm of free will. There's a realm of good over bad. Okay, I want to finish off with one last idea, and that's Makat Bechorot, the final plague, which is the plague of the firstborns. It says, Vayakom paro On that night, that there was the last plague, Pharaoh got up to go and tell Moshe to stop the plague. And the obvious question is, how did Paro get up from his sleep? It says from his sleep. He was sleeping that night. How did he sleep? It's mind-blowing. His whole people, right? Do you not know, his, his, the Egyptians told him, do you not know that Egypt has lost the battle? And Pharaoh, go, he goes to sleep that night. His whole place, he's told, he's seen nine plagues till now. He's told there's going to be one more plague and you're never going to see me again, Moshe tells him. It's going to be the plague of firstborns. And Pharaoh goes to sleep that night. He knows that the plague is coming. He's seen it come nine times already. And he goes to sleep again that night. How can he do such a thing? How can he be so heartless and crazy to put himself in a situation where he goes to sleep. I mean, it's your people. At least don't sleep. How are you sleeping? So again, it's because Hashem hardened his heart. And it says he hardened his heart, not his mind. And this is a very important idea. It goes all the way back to Adam. There is in everything that we do, the emotion and the intellect, right? There's the intellect, the logic, and then there's the emotion. This is what we learn from this story. That a person can come to a point where the intellect can know something and yet we can block our emotions from connecting to it and allow us to completely ignore it. And that's exactly, by the way, what the Nazis did as well. They knew what they were doing, but they were able to disconnect the heart from the intellect. Meaning the knowledge was there this is a human being as much as I am, but I'm able to disconnect my heart from the situation and therefore feel like it's okay intellectually to do it. So a person must know that there's a big distance between the heart and the mind. You've got to connect the brain to the mind. What Pharaoh did was he knew that his people were all going through the greatest plague of all 10. This is the 10th of all. And yet he was able to go to sleep, distancing his emotion from his intellect. Why am I telling you this? Because this is what is called Gevar Ruach. This is what, what we understand as somebody who's proud. Pride is completely in the heart. It's not an intellectual thing. It's an emotional thing. It's where somebody's able to say, oh, Right, I, I, I have every, I have everything. It, whatever I know is fine, but emotionally, I have come to a place where I am perfect, I am better, I am stronger, and I'm not going to allow my intellect to actually enter my emotion. So, if you want to understand or pinpoint what stubbornness is, it's pride, which blocks the heart, which blocks, which gets into the heart that blocks the brain from actually understanding fully and connecting to the situation. I understand. For instance, somebody's wrong. You have an argument. You know you're wrong. You know you're wrong. Intellectually, you were proven wrong. You continue the argument. Why? Because emotionally, my pride doesn't want me to feel like worthless. I need to show that at least I said something valuable. I can't feel worthless. I need to give myself my pride, my sense of pride needs to be valued. And therefore, I will be stubborn in what I said in order to, right, intellectually, I know I'm wrong. But my pride is getting into my way, which won't allow me to admit that I was wrong. And that keeps me saying things that could actually put me in worse of a situation. That's why it says, Tov erech ruach migvar ruach. Shlomo Melech, Solomon the King says, it's better to be slow in anger than to be proud. Happy 
in spirit. Slow in spirit, then happy in spirit. What does that mean? Slow in spirit means that you don't get angry. You don't get emotional about things. You calm all the time. You Okay, fine. You're right. You're right. It's better to say you're right. You're right. You're right. Then to be proud. Because pride will cause you to be stubborn and will cause you to continue on the argument, digging yourself into a bigger pit of problems. So if I want to define what stubbornness is, it's the challenge of pride that gets into my emotions that blocks my intellect. I hope that makes sense to you. But that's a very powerful idea that's there. One last thing. We're told that we need to eat every year to remember. At the end of the Torah, we're told... uh, that we need to eat matzot amaror. Matzot umoim yochluhu. The mitzvah of, uh, of Passover is to eat matzah. And it's also to eat maror. Matzah is to remember the story of Egypt. And maror is to remember the, pl- the pain. Matzah is to remember the freedom. It's a mix of the two. But it's also to remember the freedom of us leaving because we were in a quick rush to leave and we didn't have time to break the bread, so we ran out. That represents the freedom. And the maror represents the bitterness, the slavery that we went to. And there's an opinion, which is what we do every year. We first have just the matzah, right? Then we have just the maror. And then we have matzah and maror together. When we have just the matzah, what do we do? We have to, you remember, we have to lean on which side? The right-hand side. That, anyone listening? We have to lean on the left-hand side, right? When we eat the, when we eat the matzah, you've got to lean on the left-hand side. Why? To show your freedom. When you eat the marrow, the bitter herbs, which side do you lean at all? You're thinking of your slavery. Do you lean when you eat the bitter herbs? you eat the lettuce? Are you leaning? And the answer is no. You only eat only when you eat the matzah. But then... After you've eaten the matzah, after you've eaten the marrow, we mix the two together. That's the final uh, opinion, which is karuch. You'd have the matzah mixed with the marrow, put together, and we have al-matzot umurim yuchlu. We have them both together. When you have matzah and marrow, it's a mix of freedom and a mix of bitterness. It's a mix of matzah and bitterness. Do you lean in that situation? What do you guys think? What do you guys think? Do you lean or not? What's the law in that situation? Do we lean when we have matzah and maro put together? What do you think? Well, this is the mitzvah of the parsha. This is mentioned in the parsha at the end. When we have matzah, we lean. When we have marrow, we don't lean. When we have matzah and marrow together, we still lean. How come? There's a bit of slavery there. We're still feeling the pain of slavery. And the answer that's given by the Baal Shem Tov, who's the founder of the Hasidic movement, is fascinating. He says that matzah represents freedom. It represents emunah, faith. And in a world of faith, when you have faith, even if you're going through bitterness, you could still lean. You could still feel that freedom. A person that has faith, which is not just hope, it's, you know, it's not just being hopeful, it's, it's not just being optimistic, it's being hopeful, it's, it's real, it's, it's something that's real. When a person has faith, even if they're going through moments of bitterness, they're going through COVID, or they're going through whatever challenge they're going through, they could still feel freedom. And that's one of the beliefs that we have. If a person has emunah, with, if you strengthen your emunah, faith. I know that I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't see the freedom yet. But in my faith itself, by tasting the matzah in itself, I can have a sense of freedom even whilst I'm going through the marrow, even whilst I go through the bitterness. And for that reason, when I eat the matzah and marrow together, I do lean. So when I eat matzah I lean when I eat marrow alone, the bitter herbs alone. I don't lean because it's bitterness only. But when I have matzah mixed with marrow, which is how our lives really are a lot of the times, there's a mixture between pain and joy. 
if I have emunah, I can actually be free as well. There's people that I know who have very minimal amounts, but they have tremendous faith and they are so happy. Happier than I am. In a world where there's faith, even in the most challenging of situations, you'll find someone who's joyful, who's happy, who's singing, Mizmole David, singing the songs of David. He can be in the most painful place, but filled with the most joy. And therefore, we'd lean even if we have matzo with the maror. Even though there's bitterness, we still lean in matzo.